Isaiah 52. We are continuing in our study of the, of the book of Isaiah. And uh, doing so in light of the season in which we're in, it's okay. There'll be some good lessons that we can learn even in this particular passage to encourage us about letting people know about Jesus Christ. Isaiah 52, verses 1 through 4, and I'll read these verses first and then we'll pray. But it is really a continuation of of chapter 51, and so you'll see the tie-in in just a moment. But verse 1 says, Awake, awake. That's for us here too. (laughs) Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise. Sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there, Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Our Father, we pray this evening for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you will speak to us, O God, to each and every one of us. That we, Lord, will continue to keep our eyes and our hearts upon you to keep our ears open to your word and our minds ready to heed and our hearts ready to receive all your wisdom, all your grace all your truth admonish us Exhort us, challenge us, Lord, warn us, encourage us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is the third of three wake-up calls given in chapters 51 and 52. The first was actually given to the Lord by the people. To arouse arouse him to bear his arm, as it were. To show his strength. To put on strength in defeating their enemies as he did. When he redeemed them from Egyptian bondage. You go back to verse 9 of the previous chapter and it says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. And last time we said that the arm of the Lord is not so much just a part of the body as much as it is really just the, the Messiah himself. The arm of the Lord is the Messiah of the Lord. And so it says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm 
that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent. And we mentioned that Rahab and the serpent were connected to Egypt and to the Pharaoh. And so the awakening, it was to the Lord, the first one. But the second wake-up call was directed toward the ruined city of Jerusalem to remember God's judgments and God's promises. Now we're not going to read all of the passage, but it begins in verse 17 because it says there, Awake, awake, and that's Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of His fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. And then you read on all the way down to verse 23 of that section to see God's judgments and God's promises. And they were acting in a drunken stupor. And so God was saying, awake to them out of that uh, drunkenness. Drunk. Because of the dregs of the cup of trembling, because of the judgments themselves. But now that Jerusalem has awakened from its drunkenness and received God's promise that He would never again punish it, they are commanded not only to wake up, but to dress up. Wake up and dress up. As you read the words of this prophecy, you realize that it will have its ultimate fulfillment in the very last of days. So it is yet to come. Certainly Jerusalem has yet to be dealt with completely. And so with that in mind, this is speaking of that time when Jerusalem will truly be a holy city. When you go to Jerusalem today, you see certainly a sense of what God is doing there. But you also see the sin and you also see the detachment from the Lord there. But there will be a day when Jerusalem will truly be a separated city unto God, a city that is holy unto the Lord. And consider that uh, that statement for the uncircumcised and the unclean no longer coming to them. As we read there in verse 1, this would be the characteristic of this new Jerusalem. That being of of no uncircumcised, no unclean coming to Jerusalem. You go all the way to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 27. You read chapter 21, but down in verse 27 it says, But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles, uncircumcised, unclean. Anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And when you read the whole chapter, you realize that it's, it's talking about the new Jerusalem. So that's the fulfillment, the complete and ultimate fulfillment of this particular passage. The prophecy is looking all the way to the end. And so Zion must put on her glorious garments because the judgment is over by this time. So that is what the Lord is saying. Awake and put on the garments of praise. Put on the garments of glory. You no longer have to be in that sense of mourning or in that position or, or, or place of mourning. We'll get to that in a moment. But in fact, in verse 2, Jerusalem is commanded to stop its mourning, to stop its weeping, to stop its grief. 
We know that one of the customs of the people in times of mourning and grieving was to cover themselves with dust and ashes. But now that the king was back, now that the king had returned, and I, I speak in the past tense, but that's that, uh, you know, that uh, device of saying, you know, we speak in the past tense as if it is already done, because it is done in God's mind, and God's heart. But yet we look to the future to know that it's still yet to happen in Jerusalem. But nonetheless, when the king is back, they, will, they are to shake off that dust. Shake it off and to sit, not in the ground any longer, but to sit in the seat of honor that once belonged to the queen of Babylon. Things are going to change. Just go completely, you know, topsy-turvy here in the way things are being done. I mentioned Babylon because Babylon is, is, is important to the understanding of the captivity that Israel went into back in, in that time. But the book of Revelation talks about Babylon as well. And that uh, there is some, someone sitting in some kind of a place of great position and honor. That's all going to just turn completely around. And Jerusalem and Zion and God's people will be sitting in the place of honor. And this queen of Babylon will not. Notice if you go back a few chapters to chapter 47. And we touched on it back then when it says in verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without, without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. There will be a day when they will be dis- defeated. There will be a day when Babylon itself will fall to the ground, fall to the dust. And what are they going to do there? Mourn because of what they have done. But Jerusalem, the time has come to be free from her chains and to dwell in liberty. And so we see that there in in verse 2. They shake off that dust. Verses 3 and 4 then. And let's read down through verse 6. For thus says the Lord, You have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. You begin to get the picture here. As to why Israel in general and Zion in particular felt so worthless. This is how they looked at themselves. You know, when we go back to, to chapter 49 and you think about you know, the cry of Zion, you know, that... Uh, you know, God had forsaken them. God had left them. God no longer cared for them. And the Lord said, but I've written you on the palm of my hand. A mother may forget her nursing child, but I will not forget you. And so they had that, that idea, they had that thought that, that they were just worthless. You ever felt that way? Have you ever felt worthless? There are times when we feel that way because of what we've done in the presence of a holy God. And, and then, then we think, you know, well, we, we find ourselves in that aspect of guilt, you know. And, and we think, well, God's not, you know, the enemy 
try to, tries to convince us that God's not going to forgive us for it. God's bigger and better than that, though, we know. But it's the way we feel sometimes. You know, we just feel that, that sense of worthlessness. But think about Israel for just a moment. Think about all of Israel. Though you can think of Judah in particular, but think of all of Israel. Because they had been defiled, they had been enslaved, they had been sold, they had been oppressed, and they had been mocked. Those five things, defiled, enslaved, sold, oppressed, and mocked. I mean, that's a pretty good reason to feel so worthless. When all of those things have happened to you, now it happened to them because of their own sin, because of their own rebellion. But nonetheless, it's a good reason to feel so worthless. Not to mention the usage of of the word nothing in verses 3 and 5. Twice that word is, is used, nothing. She had been sold for nothing, it says, and taken away for nothing. And you get against, and you get again that sense of worthlessness. Something might be worth to you a lot, but for most people, it'd be nothing. It's worth nothing. Less than what we could ever imagine. And you can also see another meaning here as well when 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 the word nothing is used. Notice in the text in verse 3, it says, You have sold yourselves for nothing. You see that? You have sold yourselves for nothing. They had sold themselves into sin for nothing. When they went after other gods, when they went after their own, their own personal likings and all. They sold themselves into sin for nothing. Go back, if you will, just for a moment to verse or to uh, chapter fifty, verse one. And again, this is not a new thought. For it says in verse one, "Thus says the Lord: Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves." And for your transgressions, your mother has been put away. So the very fact that they had sold themselves was not a new thought. But here in in chapter 52, it says, you have sold yourselves for nothing. Now, there's another understanding to that in just a moment, and I'll get to that. But Paul uses a very similar picture in the book of Romans. Talks about ourselves. Talks about us. Romans 7, verse 14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And once again, the thought, of course, has to do with us being sold into sin. Sold into the slavery of sin. For what? For nothing. You see, a lot of people get into sin because they think they're going to get something from it. Not that they think in those terms. But you understand what I'm saying. There's got to be something good in the, you know, in the pleasures of the world. Well, look at the way the world is going after it today. But as they get into these pleasures and into the pleasures of the world, what are they coming out with? Nothing. That's the thought here. There's nothing there. By the way, a person steals $2 million, $3 million. 
$5 million, $100 million. I could go on and on. But you can get the picture here. You steal all that money, try to live on it. The next day you're gone. The next day you're dead. Do you take it with you? What did it do for you? Nothing. And that's the way people are living their lives today. As a matter of fact, many of us lived our lives that way as well. Seeking after the things that, that uh, will, will just waste away. Putting our treasures, you know, making our treasures the things of this world rather than storing up treasures in heaven. Now today, if we are walking with the Lord, if we are living for Christ, we're, we're doing what the Lord said, you know, store up for yourselves not treasures on earth where moth or rust can destroy or people can break in and steal, but store up your, tre- your treasures in heaven. Spiritual treasures. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And there's something to say that, you know, we, we didn't purchase it, we didn't buy it, it was given to us. It was, it, it's an inheritance of ours because we belong to Christ. And we're joint heirs with the Lord. But just the very thought that when we are in sin, when we have been sold into the slavery of sin, we're sold. Think of Esau for just a moment. I don't want to go and, and look at that passage. You can look it up later. But Esau and Jacob. Esau, the brother of Jacob, was willing to sell his future, his birthright. He was willing to sell his future just for a bowl of stew. Now how long will that bowl of stew last? In, your, in a person's body. When you get right down to it, it'll last at all. You eat it, you're satisfied for just as long. And then through the processes of the natural body, it's gone. He sold his whole future for a bowl of stew. And you would have to say eventually, really, just came down to this. He sold his birthright for nothing. For nothing. In fact, in verse 2 of our text here, Jerusalem is commanded to, you know, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> on the wrong page here. But, but uh, he's, he, you know, it's just keep that thought in mind about nothing. I mean, it brings to mind the fact that money does talk. Money does talk. In a book written a few years ago entitled, The Day America Told the Truth. It's written back in the 90s. But the authors, James Patterson and Peter Kim, reported on a survey asking adults what they would be willing to do for $10 million. Listen carefully to this. They reported a survey asking adults what they would be willing to do for $10 million. One out of four respondents, one out of four respondents said they would abandon their entire family. One out of four. And almost that many, 23%, because the one out of four is 25%, and almost that much, 23%, said they would become prostitutes for a week for that kind of payoff. 23%. About 16% said they would be willing to leave their husband or wife, and 3% would put their children up for adoption. For $10 million. 
It is a sad thing for sin to be so deceiving. That people would abandon their family for a, for a brief moment of pleasure. Folks, I've heard stories about people who win lotteries. And there, there are a lot more stories, you know, if you really kind of do the research. A lot of people who win lotteries because they don't properly invest it. They lose it in just a few years. All gone. I spent it for a season. And it was all gone. A moment of pleasure, a brief moment. When you think of it, they abandon their family for nothing. For nothing. And even if someone found a way to get that money in the process, they wouldn't be able to take it with them, like I said before, whenever or wherever their eternal destiny might lie, since it's all going to burn anyway, isn't it? That's not what the Scriptures tell us, that the earth, the heavens and the earth are going to burn away. The heavens and the earth as we know them today will all burn away. Read Second Peter, where it tells us that, and of course he's... Referring back to the prophets. We do well, you see. We do well to look at, at the example given to us by, by Moses. When it tells us of Moses and of his faith in Hebrews chapter 11, listen, we do well to listen to what it says about Moses. In verse 24 it says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. In the King James it says, uh, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. I like that better. To enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. His eyes, though, although the Lord was invisible, his eyes were on the Lord. His eyes were on the, on, on the eternal reward of his Messiah. Not the passing pleasures of sin. Not enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. They just pass away. And when they do, there's nothing left. They might have sold themselves into sin without money. And though they were, brought, they were bought back without money, as, as our text tells us, it doesn't mean that it didn't cost the Lord anything to buy them back. I mean, this goes for us as well. We were bought with a price, the Scripture says. They were not, they, it says, you shall be redeemed without money. Yeah. What was the price? What was the price? A price would be paid and was paid, not with money, but with blood. The blood of the Messiah, the blood of the perfect Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world. Peter, in describing this, says in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold 
from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That was the price. That was the price that was paid for our sins. That was the price that was spilled to buy us back, to redeem us. You see, that is what redemption is, to be bought back. We were sold without money. We were sold for nothing. We sold ourselves into sin for nothing. We were bought back without money. We were bought back with blood. Verse 4 of our text then expands on Israel's distressing situation. Because it isn't the first time that Israel suffered oppression. From the beginning they went down to Egypt, it says, to live there as strangers and found out what it meant to be dependent on strangers. This is a very key thought here, so please don't lose a grip on this. They went to to Egypt to live there as strangers and found out what it meant to be dependent on strangers. They became slaves. That's what happens when you become dependent on strangers. You become a slave. That can happen even in our own day and time. We become dependent on lending institutions. We can become dependent on all kinds of, of, of uh, situations or all kinds of, 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 uh, of groups or companies or whatever that have a hold on us over one thing or another. They're strangers. They don't know you. They just know you as a number. They know you as a button on a computer. And we become enslaved to these things. Later Assyria came into into the land. And they deported ten tribes and also oppressed Judah. And all of that, you know what? All of that for nothing. All of that for nothing. Now, please understand this. Here's that other understanding of what it means that they were sold for nothing. This means that the Assyrians had no rightful claim on God's people. They took them. For nothing. Because they had no claim on God's people. Why? Because God eventually will have His people back. And so even though they were justly punished in God's eyes, God wasn't going to keep them under the, uh, the oppressive hand of either the Babylonians or the Assyrians. And they, as enemies, would suffer God's, from God's wrath for what they did to His people. So that's the other understanding of when it says nothing. All of them apply. They sold themselves for nothing. They get nothing out of it. But having been taken into slavery for nothing, that means nothing for the Assyrians. Because they have no rightful claim to God's people. God used them to punish His people. God used them to put His people under under that... Uh, uh, conviction and, 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 and the, uh, the discipline but then God is going to deal with them for the way that he treat, they treated his people verse 5 
brings us to their current situation in chapter 52, not their present condition today, so much as at that current time in chapter 52. Because it's what the Lord now sees. Look, look how, it, how it's, it's written there. Now therefore, what have I here? Says the Lord. That my people are taken away for nothing. What have I here? What am I seeing here? You see, what the Lord sees now exceeds all that, he, all that has gone on in the past. The people have been taken from their own land. For what? For nothing. For the Chaldeans had no rightful claim to them. They raged against God's people. In other words, the Chaldeans raged against God's people presumptuously. And worst of all, they blasphemed the name of the Lord all day long. That's what the Lord is seeing here. And therefore, for these reasons, the Lord says in verse 6, Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. They shall know my name. Now, you know what's important about that thought? We need to know His name. If we know the name of God, if we know His name, if we truly know it, if we have that deep understanding of who God is, and His name is everything, that is our salvation, that is our safety, that is our uh, defense, that is our deliverance, it is all in the name of God, in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus. And so he says, therefore my people shall know my name. From all that I see them doing to my people, they shall know my name. Are you, are you getting a little understanding of what he's saying here? Because on that great day of redemption, Israel will learn by experience and know what wonderful and marvelous things are to be found in that name in spite of all reproaches. In spite of all of their punishings, and in spite of all of their sufferings, they are going to know by experience how wonderful things are in the name of God. He will reveal Himself in His greatness. He will reveal Himself in His grace. He will reveal Himself in His faithfulness. And it is all in His name. That is why it is important to look at Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11... Because Paul says, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Here's the name. He's given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, Yeshua, the name that means God is salvation, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the name. They shall know my name and at my name every knee shall bow. There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved but in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the importance of us as Christians knowing the name. Knowing the name in its power. Knowing the name in its purpose. Knowing the name in everything that God wants to do for us. His plan for you and for me. And it is tragic enough that the world does not know or honor God's name or Christ's name for that matter. But it is far worse when His own people do not know or honor His name above all names. And it is a sad thing that there are those people that withhold the name of Jesus because they don't want to offend anybody. 
And yet the Bible says that his name is going to be offensive. And Jesus himself said, I did not come to bring together. I came to divide. Now, he's not saying that in terms of, uh, it's just the very fact that there are going to be people who are going to be affected by who Jesus Christ is. But he's going to heal. He's going to save. He's going to deliver. But there will be those who, because of his very nature, and the very nature of his name, the very nature of who he is, people will reject it. Jesus has been rejected down through the ages, hasn't he? There's a one generation that all of a sudden said, oh, we've, we finally got it. You know, the light bulb goes off. Oh, this is Jesus. He's our Savior. As a matter of fact, even to his own people. John 1.11 says he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. But to as many as believed in his name. Verse 12. To as many as believe in his name, he gave the right to become the sons of God. To as many as believe in his name, you see. To as many as believe in his name. His name. The name of Jesus. I love the name of Jesus. I love to say the name of Jesus. I love to worship the Lord and just proclaim His name. I don't know where they get the idea that we don't want to step on any toes. I want to step on your toes with the name of Jesus Christ. Because I want to wake you up to the very fact that there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. No other name that is to be worshipped. No other name that is to be praised. The name of Jesus Christ. And if anybody ever says, you can't say that name anymore, I'll say it until they put me away. Because there's no other name but Jesus Christ. And I have to battle this. I have to battle this on a daily basis. As a chaplain. When I'm placed in... in uh, non-sectarian situations. But I know who I'm praying to. I have to be very wise. But when the opportunity comes, I can't hold back. Because I love the name of Jesus too much. That was That was the name. The early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, during the Jesus movement. Gee, the Jesus movement. There was no other name. There were people who wanted their name associated with the name of Jesus. But hey, that's not the way it works. It's not Jesus plus, it's Jesus. Let's get that into our thick skulls. It's just Jesus. The world may not accept it right now, but every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. That's why I always remember, I always remember that, that old Fram Filter commercial. Give me now, buy me now, buy me later. You, know, pay, you can pay me now or pay me later. You buy now, you'll be okay. You got the Fram filter in there, you know. But if you don't put that Fram filter in, you're going to pay later because it's all going to fall apart, you know. Because one day it's just going to happen. Every knee shall bow. So pay me now. Pay me the honor and glory. 
Because the Lord is worthy of it. Pay me now. Verse 7 is a very familiar verse. To those who love the preaching of the gospel and who love to do the preaching of the gospel, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Good news. That's in the Greek, of course, the gospel. Evangelio. Or we get the word evangelist or evangelical from good news. Who proclaim peace. Or who proclaims peace. Who brings glad tidings of good things. Who proclaims salvation. Who who says to Zion, your God reigns. In other words, the message comes to Zion, to Jerusalem. Your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Do you see, speaking in the past tense of something that is yet to happen, but it's already happened in the heart and mind of God. This is the prophecy. The Lord has made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Again, pointing to the ultimate fulfillment. No one whom the Lord values so highly, and again, consider Jerusalem, consider Zion. No one whom the Lord values so highly can be worthless. No matter what humiliation they've suffered, they can never be worthless to the eyes of God. And the exciting news that breaks out here and demands to be shouted from the housetops is that the Lord is about to give fresh expression to His love for Zion by totally reversing her circumstances. She had been on the ground, she had been in mourning, but now he says, get up and sit on the throne. And all the world will see him do it. All the world will see God do it. Isaiah prophesies of the beautiful feet of those who bring the gospel, who bring the good news, those who are partnering with God for the salvation of men. Paul quotes this verse. In Romans chapter 10, in verses 14 and 15, he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now consider these questions very carefully. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Rhetorical questions. Questions that you know, demand, really, only one answer. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and he quotes from Isaiah 52, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. That's, that's why he's saying this, to answer those questions. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Well, they're going to hear who, of, of him whom they, who they need to hear of, because it says faith, later on in verse 17 of Romans, chapter 10 says, Faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So the feet, the beautiful feet. And you you know, a lot of people, they just don't like their feet. They don't consider their feet very beautiful at all. And, you know, just... uh, (laughs) I suppose that's, that's an industry in itself, isn't it, ladies? I guess in the summertime you get all those feet stuff, you know, so you can have pretty feet, you know. 
But, but guys, they don't have the ugliest feet, man. I just, you know. But whatever it is, this is beautiful feet. And we're not talking so much physically as we are talking about spiritually because the feet here speak of activity, motion, and progress. Activity, motion, and progress. Those who are active and moving in the work of the preaching of the gospel. Think of these questions for just a moment. Please think of these questions. Not the questions we just heard. But these questions I'm going to ask you. Has Jesus changed your life? Has Jesus changed your life? Then you ought to have beautiful feet to take that gospel to people who need Jesus. Has Jesus changed your life? Do you know? Here's another question. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that He loves you? Then tell somebody. Do you see Jesus in His Word doing what He does for you? I brought this up on Sunday. That we see You know, in other words, we see for ourselves in the gospel, we see what Jesus did for us. Listen, that's what stirs us in our hearts to tell somebody. It's real. He's alive. Do you remember that you needed to receive Jesus' free gift of forgiveness to be saved? Do you remember that? That's what other people need too. They need forgiveness of sin. So now you know enough to have beautiful feet and to share with others. You know. There's no, there's no reason, and, and really, you shouldn't want to plead ignorance. If you know that Jesus has done, have, has done these things for you, then do something about it. Tell somebody about the Lord. And then then Isaiah brings up the leaders, the watchmen. It says that the leaders take up the message and they sing together to the glory of God. And it reminds me of every time that we gather together in this place. Are we singing unto the glory of God because of what He's done for us? I mean, it begins with the leaders, certainly, but all of us. That they not only hear what God has done, but they also see it happening. That's what was happening to the leaders then. They not only hear about it, they're seeing it happen. More and more, that's going to happen in the days to come with Israel. The wilderness will join the song because, uh, because the desolate cities and waste places will be transformed. That's starting to happen already in the land, but not like it's going to happen later. It is so important to remember that the ultimate fulfillment is when Jesus comes back to rescue Jerusalem from the clutches of the Antichrist. That is when the ultimate fulfillment will take place. The Lord is going to roll up His sleeves. That's what it means, to bear His arm. Roll up His sleeves and show that. You know, you see those guys on TV, man, you know, the football players. They make one good play and then they go like this. And they go, and they start kissing their... Man, I mean, it's just silly, isn't it? I just think it's just silly. You know, they're just showing off. They do one good play. Then the next play, they, you know, they stumble and fall on their face. Or they're carted off, you know, because they're hurt, you know. But that one good play, oh yeah, I'll bear my arm. Yeah, wait till, wait till the Lord bears His arm. Man, nobody's going to stand. Then, that's might, that's power when He does it. He's going to roll up His sleeves and the entire world will see His salvation. That's what the gospel says. That's what the Bible says. The entire world will see His salvation. Matthew 24, verse 30 says, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's going to bear His arm for His people. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, He's coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him. 
even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because they'll see him. Comes bearing his arm for his people. As we continue now, the Lord gives his people a call to purity, a call to separation from Babylon. And this is actually a near and a far fulfillment. The call was for then when they came back from Babylon. The call is for us, His people, today. The call will be for all of Jerusalem and all of Israel when the day of Jesus' return. Isaiah 52, verse 11 and verse 12 says, Depart, depart. What was the cry before? Awake, awake. Now the cry is, Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Just as it was when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, and the Lord said, I will be, I will be your cloud of, 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 uh, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And God went before them and, and, and behind them, and He protected them. He was to be their rear guard. The Lord is our rear guard. He's always got our backs. He's always got our backs. But it's interesting that He has to tell them, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. You know, it, it just doesn't it just seem strange that the Lord would have to urge His people to leave a place of captivity? Doesn't that seem strange? They've been in captivity, they've been crying to God, Oh God, get us out of there. And then God gets them out and what, he's, he says, Come on, get out of there! He says, You're free now. Get out of there. But you see, many of them had grown accustomed to Babylon. There's the problem. Many had grown accustomed to Babylon and they, they were reluctant to leave. And that's a sad thing. That's a word for us as well. We seem to think that we have certain sins under control, right? But the Lord says, don't even touch them. Don't even touch them. When Cyrus issued his decree, think of this. When Cyrus issued his decree, the first group of about 50,000 people left Babylon in 538 B.C. I wasn't even close to how many were out. This was under the leadership of uh, Sheshbazar, Zerubbabel, and Yeshua the high priest. You can read about that in Ezra chapters 1 and 2. They actually carried with them the vessels of the Lord, as we've read in the text there. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. You know, they, they bore the vessels of the Lord when they went back to Jerusalem. The articles needed for service in the temple. Then a second group of nearly... 1,800 or 1,800 people led by Ezra left Babylon in 458 B.C. It's not a whole lot of them when you think about it. The rest, many of them stayed in Babylon. But now the Scriptures tell us that because of Jesus, we are all now priests to God. I didn't know if you knew that or not, but that's what the Scriptures tell us. 
That's what the Scriptures teach us. For example, in Revelation 1 verse 6 says, He has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. Literally it says, He has made us a kingdom of priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's made us a kingdom of priests. We're priests before God. Priests offering up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving unto the Lord. Offering ourselves, as we'll see here in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. In other words, don't be conformed to Babylon. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then Paul individually speaks to Timothy and he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verses 20 and 21, but in a great house it says, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the Master, prepared for every good work. (laughs) Well, that's that's what we're called to be, a vessel of honor, uh, sanctified, set apart for the Master's use. Why? Because we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to Him. We're not only the priests who offer the sacrifices unto the Lord, we are also the sacrifice. (laughs) We're the vessel of honor. Or we are to be anyway. Read in 2 Corinthians, you know, it tells us there that, that, uh, you know, we need to be careful. We need to be clean. We need to be holy before the Lord. The fact that the Lord is our rear guard is a reminder that when God's salvation comes, there is that sense of peace in His glorious work in contrast to a striving in haste. Uh, think about that statement that he makes there in verse uh, 12. He says, You shall not go out with haste, in other words, hurriedly, nor go by flight. You, you are not to go, you know, because anybody who hurries is not at peace. That, that's why I think it's crazy right now, you know, the, the, the Christmas season and, and everybody going here and there, and, and, and I mean, breaking the laws it, at one intersection. I'll tell you where it is. Corner of Zaragoza and, and the freeway. One intersection. At, at, at one sitting, as I'm just coming to the intersection. Three violations. I saw three violations right in front of me. <laughs> it, was, it was like, these people are seriously in trouble if somebody was around to catch them. Because they were just doing terrible things just to get rushing through the light. And, and it doesn't matter now that they have the cameras with the, you know, the, the pictures and all, you know, smile, yeah, you know, because yeah, they, were, they were wanting to get to the next sale or something, but it was three of them, and one of them almost hit me, you know, so I'm thankful to the Lord, I was just, oh, praise the Lord, you know, I wasn't saying anything else, honestly. I thought about it, but I didn't want to do that. <laughs> So, you know, there's a contrast here. You know, the, the sense of peace, you don't have to run out of there. The sense of peace, in contrast to striving in, in haste. Because when it says in flight there, it, it, it's just a, a reminder that only fugitives run for their lives in flight from the law. Only fugitives run 
in, uh, for their lives. You don't have to run for your life. The Lord gave you life. That's peace. Living in the peace of the Lord. Verses 13 and 15, or 13 through 15, it says, Behold my servant. Uh, this is really now the next section that goes into chapter 53. So we're just going to cover this very briefly. We'll come back to this next time. But it says, Behold my servant shall deal prudently. We're back to the servant. Now, who is the servant? Jesus, the Messiah. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. You see, this passage here begins a new section that continues through chapter 53 and deals with Jesus the Messiah, the suffering servant. And certainly it is one of the most recognizable prophecies of the entire Old Testament. Not long ago we, we studied in the book of Acts concerning an Ethiopian eunuch who asked a question about Isaiah 52 verse 13 and it extends all the way to verse 12 of chapter 53. That's the whole section. And the question was this in verse, uh, uh, Acts 8 verse 34. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. So that whole section from Isaiah 52 verse 13 all the way through Isaiah 53 verse 12 is the section that the eunuch was asking him about and that's the section that Philip used to preach Jesus to him. Now, in Matthew chapter 8, the scriptures take this passage in Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through 53, 12, and they apply it to Jesus as well. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 says, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, notice, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. That's in chapter 53. But nonetheless, it ties it to Jesus. It says, The suffering servant is Jesus. There's another example in, in chapter 12. We won't get to that one. But the passage in our text here begins actually with a declaration of victory because it says, He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. But the term extolled here literally means lifted up. He will be lifted up. And it is the only place in the Old Testament where this one particular word is used. Uh, there are many uh, other inferences and, and different words that mean the same thing. But, but just this one word here for extolled is used right here in this particular place in the Old Testament. And it is used, uh, Jesus uses it in the, in the uh, Gospel of John. In John 12, verses 32 and 33, notice that it says, And I, if I am lifted up, same word, same thought, and, if I, and, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And then it says, This he said, signifying by what death he would die. 
Now, in Isaiah, it's a, it's a, it's a statement of victory. And Jesus was talking about the cross. Because that is our victory. Jesus is talking about it as His suffering. As His death. But it's our victory. It began with His suffering. And Isaiah declares that when people see Him, they will be troubled because He was marred more than any other man. These things we'll talk about more in detail in chapter 53. But chapter 52 closes with a prophecy. Dealing with the cleansing of many nations, it says. Jesus is certainly Isaiah's Messiah, but He belongs to more than Israel. His cleansing work will extend far beyond Israel to many nations and many kingdoms. Nothing will be said against Him, though His suffering appearance will be seen by kings. That is why it says there. That is why it, it deals with that the particular picture. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any other man, or more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So it talks about his visage. And, and, and when they see it, nothing can be said. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 5, verse 6, it says, And I looked... And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. The very, the very fact that you could see him as it had been slain, what, is, what picture do you get there? You could only get one picture. A lamb as it, was, as it had been slain. Seeing him marred. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. But nonetheless, this is what they'll see. But what will they say? Nothing. His glory and His great work will stop every tongue. His glory and His great work stops every tongue. When they spoke against Him before, it was in blindness. But now it says, what, not, what had not been told them, they shall see. The one that people regarded as unclean, because when you look at verse 14, again, you're looking at something that would have been regarded as unclean. And the one that people regarded as unclean would turn out to be the one who cleanses others. And so that last statement there, it says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. And I want to close real quickly here with Romans chapter 15. Because there's something here that we need to see. Something that the Apostle Paul quotes here from the last verse of chapter 52. It begins at verse 20. Paul says, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, To whom he has not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Paul uses this particular end of chapter 52 to make a statement about his calling to preach the gospel, to take it to everyone who has not seen or heard.
It's an unfortunate situation that many people today will build on another man's foundation. But we can talk about that in another time. The important thing is that Paul says, I've made it my aim to preach the gospel. I've made it my aim to preach the good news. I've made it my aim to preach the good tidings that Jesus Christ has come. You know, we have a perfect opportunity in the next week or so to tell people about Jesus. Because they see it all around them. They're probably listening to 99.9 and all the Christmas music. Forget about Santa and, that, you know, Rudolph and Frosty and all of that. And between all of that, there's songs about Jesus. I think people today would, would, would admit if they would just put aside a lot of their presumptuousness and, and a lot of their preconceived notions that they know down deep inside that they need Jesus Christ. And they want to truly celebrate what Christmas is really all about. Not the merchandising, not all the sales, all the crazy driving to get to the sales. But they want to get to see Jesus. They haven't heard. Oh, they've heard about, but they haven't really heard the good news. It's time to tell people the good news. Jesus Christ came to save men, lost men. Men lost in their sins, sold for nothing. But when we come to Christ, we realize what a value He's placed on our lives because we were created in the image of God. And that is why John 3.16 still rings so powerfully today. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray.